Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Maya Mizraki, which was recorded last year, prior to launching Defiance, actually. After a dispute with the Panamanian government, Maya found himself fighting extradition after being arrested by Interpol in Colombia. He spent many months in a Colombian prison before being deported back to Panama, where he was told he couldn't leave the country. In this interview, we discuss how Mayer not only survived his time in prison, but thrived, and how he managed to continue to run his company and even launch an app from behind bars. But before we get into the interview, I do need to thank my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you are enjoying Defiance and you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. You can leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. You can follow me on social media, at Peter McCormack, and you can share it out with your friends and family. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Maya, how are you? I'm good, Peter. How are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. So, I've obviously read a lot in your story, and there's a lot of articles out there. Can you update me on where you are at the moment and what, where you are within the legal process. Sure. So I am in hot and humid Panama, and I've been here for the last two years. Currently, I am days away from a preliminary hearing of which we will be absolved from uh, entirely, from everything I've been living through in the last uh, four years, I would say. What do you mean by a preliminary hearing and you will be absolved is there confirmation or is this a confidence thing so so basically they are processed through any type of investigation so there's the investigation period then there is a hearing whereby the judge will analyze the findings of the prosecutors and establish the need or not of an actual trial so in this hearing they're going to define whether there's need for this case to go to trial. Luckily, two weeks ago, the case was was shut down by uh, by another judge. It's funny because this is a case of double je- double jeopardy. So, you know, given that already a judge has ruled that there was no wrongdoing, that um, there's no cause for trial, there's a very low likelihood that another judge is going to say, "Well, we're going to take this to trial." But this is the tropics, so <laughs> welcome to Banana Republics. You know, things can change. Right, okay. And you have, how long have you now been in Panama? I've been in Panama for two years in September. And the restrictions you have, are you imprisoned within the country? I am imprisoned with, within the country. I have my passport, which is as useful as a you know, paperweight, but I can't travel. 
I can't move residences. And when this all began, you know, the lawyers they stayed in my residence was uh, at my mother's home. So I am doing, I'm, I'm living the Jewish prophecy of being third, uh, 30, unmarried, and living in my mother's home. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the restrictions. And I'm guessing you don't have your place in New York anymore. No, 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 no. Not my place, not the company's uh, head office either. We basically had to move away from our uh, physical operations in New York. You know, I'm basically set up in Panama where my development team is still and always has been in Ecuador. Right, okay. So it's been quite a journey to this current point, And obviously, I would like to talk to you and ask you about the future and what's going to come. But I think we should probably now go back and look at the chain of events that's led you to being where you are now. Can you take me back to when you first agreed a contract with the government of Panama? Sure. Yeah, sure. So the government of Panama uh, met me through an incubator program in Miami. So I had left Panama in 2013 to start a messaging, you know, a, 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 a story company. What we know as stories today in Instagram. Well, I was building that in 2013 with a different format. The company was called Hash. I left to Miami to this incubator called Venture Hive. And a week into the incubator program, Susan Amat, the program director, she invited me to come to Panama with her as she was about to meet with the government for a potential Venture Hive Latin America based out of Panama meeting. So I went with her. I went with her and she basically uh, used me as her, the poster child of Latin American innovation and the and the brain drain that's happening for because of the lack of a incubator program. And then they asked me in this meeting, so what it is that you do? I said, well, we're doing messaging and um, and and what's going to be unique about this story kind of messaging app is going to be that it's encrypted. And they said, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, we would like to have a meeting with you afterwards. Um, we have some needs of our own. So um, long story short, they asked us to build a custom messaging app just for them, exclusively for the for use of the Panamanian government. And that's basically it. That's um, That was in, I would say, October 2013. So we started, you know, collecting requirements and, and then uh, building alpha versions and testing. And by February, we had agreed upon a contract whereby we would deliver them through a SaaS model, the service. So the app would be available in the app store, but you could only create, get access to the app or have an account if the government issued an account for you through a web admin panel. And they had 100 licenses. And for these 100 licenses, we charged them $200,000. And the goal was that after this, you know, the first contract was, a little steeper and then in the renewals well you would get like a $30,000 a month kind of a year kind of program and the hope was that we could sell this to other governments or other private enterprises and 
And it was working fine. By April, we delivered the software. We even demoed it at, at the accelerator, at the demo day of this accelerator in Miami in April 2014. And um, well, they weren't really impressed because they really didn't understand encryption or the need for encryption back in 2014. But, but it worked really well. And the government started using it. They issued 100 licenses. We... Of course, because it was our platform, we could oversee the activity, not the content of the messages, for example, but, but we knew that, that messages were being sent, that users were being created, and accounts were being logged into. So we were happy. They were happy. And we even t- took this in May, to, in May 2014 to TechCrunch uh, to disrupt New York. And we demoed it there. And, well, that's when we realized that no one really wanted an app with those requirements. No enterprise really wanted that software, but we were locked into a contract, so we couldn't make changes to the app or to the functionality. So we just stuck to it. But we realized we were we realized that if we were going to grow as a company, we had it. We had to look at a different vertical in our expertise. So we started looking at secure email, um, using our encryption for email purposes. But then things got interesting because 2014 was also an election year. In Panama, and by August 2014, there was a new government in place, and the new government was headed by the ex vice president of the then government uh, when I signed the, the contract, and apparently they had a big fight, like they had this big falling out, the president and the vice president, and they were they were just hateful enemies. And this guy won the presidency, and and it was like a, a big, oh my God, uh, in Panama. I had no idea. I, I really don't, I, I was really never politically conscious at the time, because I hadn't lived in Panama for a long time. Was there a handover procedure with the software? Yeah. In that, as the, so, so did you, were you passed new contacts from one administration to the next to speak to? Right, yeah, so... There, there was never an official handover process from one government to the other. Instead, I had to make the approach. I made the first step into, into contacting um, this guy, Irvin Hallman, who's the, let's call it the Minister of Technology. And, you know, I, I had to press for this meeting. And, you know, he came into, into the government in July. We didn't get the meeting until September. We had to push for it. And the meeting went really well. I introduced myself. I explained you know, the software from scratch. I assumed that he didn't know a thing. So I started from zero. And after that, I went back to New York. At this time, I was already living in New York. And we, we never heard back from him for over two weeks. So I emailed him back and I said, I've noticed that, um, that there's a diminishing activity in the platform you know, let me know if, if we can introduce your new team to this platform so you guys can make use of it. I got, I think it was like a, a three-word response, like, okay, thank you. And that was it. Um, I would then later email him with interesting articles about privacy or security and, you know, try to build a relationship with this, with this person. And I would never get a reply. In fact, I emailed this guy nine times he only replied about four times with a total about 21 words so 
there was there was a clear disinterest to um, engaging with the contractor at this point. But disinterest in the pro- project is, at the time, is fine. It's you know, in some ways, it may have been beneficial as there wasn't anyone else to sell the product onto. You realised it was a single case. So, at what point did you then realise? It wasn't just a case of them not using it. Was it when you received the subpoena? Well, I mean, I got worried fundamentally. Morally, it wasn't correct. Like, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't ever comfortable with the idea that there was a change in government, and then all of a sudden, this software, which was paid dearly for with with taxpayer money, was no longer being used. So, I, in October, I emailed him a very strong email. And it came from the from my heart. It was a very sentimental email. I said, you know, our contract is about to, to come to an end in December, but I don't care about a renewal. I really don't care. I don't want to talk about that. What's not right is that, uh, you know, this software, which you paid dearly for, is not being used. And that doesn't sit well with me because I'm the provider of the software. I'm going to go ahead and assume that you lost a lot of time because of the transitioning process. So what I'm about to do is give you six months for free, extend the contract for six months for free, and in, and, and in exchange, you let me instruct your people on how to use the software so you can benefit from it like the previous government did. I never got an email, a, a reply from, um, from this minister, and that was it. That was the last email I ever sent to him. Is there anything in this related to the two administrations not wanting to have used the same communication tools, almost in fear that one would be aware of what the other one had said or one would be saying, because obviously these administrations aren't friendly. Therefore, do you understand what I'm saying? I, I totally understand where you're coming from. The problem is that they weren't, they didn't look for an alternative. They, they were just using WhatsApp. And at the time, WhatsApp, wasn't secure. It wasn't encrypted. So it, it would have been fine if they had had an, uh, you know, an alternative platform that they, they had chosen or that they preferred. That's understandable. But the fact is, they just didn't care for the project or the premise of the project itself. So privacy was not of, of their utmost concern or security. And I would have never imagined at the time when I sent that email in October I would have never imagined that this was going to turn sour because at the end of the day, everything was done kosher. We could not have gotten paid for the contract had we not given proof that we have that we had delivered on the contract, and they had signed off on accepting that they have delivered that they have uh, um, received the licenses and the software for the contract. So in January two thousand fifteen, you then received a subpoena. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I was to what to New York? No, I actually I I didn't receive it because the way I found out about it, I spent I'd spent New Year's in Panama actually, and I never received a subpoena. I I found out about it through the news, through the I would say government sponsored news outlet. It's called La Prensa, and they they've had a track record of of breaking news before subpoenas even get delivered or you know it's just amazing so they're basic they've system they, they they've basically worked hand in hand with the uh w- with the journalist at this uh, at this um la prensa 
to create these cases, to investigate and create these cases, because they can create, they can start an investigation out of just any report that's published on a newspaper. So that's the mechanism that they created. I found out through this article, and I was living in Panama, and I wasn't living in Panama, I was visiting Panama at the time, and I laughed. I I found it funny because I said, well, this is this is going to be a boomerang to the to the guy because he 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 was suing me uh, personally and i said well this doesn't make sense i should be as a panamanian citizen as a as a taxpayer i should be suing him because i know for a fact that he he was negligent in using this software so i feel that i should be the one suing him so i never thought that this case would have any legs much less walk or run. Boy, was I wrong. So so you heard about the subpoena in the news. You're in Panama. What is your next action? What happens next? Well, my next, next action is this is clearly a misunderstanding. As soon as I give them screenshots and explain to investigators how this works, then I'm going to be quickly let off the hook because this is very transparent. It's black and white. So I went back to New York, I had hired a lawyer, and my lawyer was taking care of everything. And I was providing all the necessary evidence for my lawyer to to supply the investigators um, and the prosecutors. But that, it, 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 over time, you know, fast forward five months later, and investigations, I'm still part of the investigation. So that's when I started getting nervous, because there had already been, by this time, they had opened over... 50 or 60 cases against ex-government contractors. And it made it, it, made, it made it for a very scary environment in all of Panama. No one wanted to sell a single thing to the government. And that's the case today. And why were they, or why do you theorize they were opening these investigations into other contractors? There are um, very, they're, some, there are huge allegations about corruption and misuse of government funds from the previous government. And I'm sure that some of them have a a good legal basis, but I think they overreached when it comes to me. I think they've also, you know, fast forward four years after that, and a lot of those cases, most of them, I would say 80% of them, have fallen apart because they happen to be just created uh, for the sole purpose of going against political enemies uh, of the pre- of of this government, and such is the case with me. I believe that the case wasn't wasn't built to to get back the money that was stolen from the government, quote unquote, but rather to make life impossible for a political enemy of the president, which is not Meyer, by the way. Meyer is a nobody. Meyer is just a pawn in a game of chess. The enemy here really is the ex-president, uh, Ricardo Martinelli. And my father is the brother-in-law of the ex-president. So my parents are divorced. And I've always theorized that they've always wanted to go against my father for his closeness to the president, the ex-president. And they couldn't get to my dad, so, so they used me as bait. And it's been, it's created a a terrible president in Panama for future political persecutions. At this point, you know, like law, like draw lines have always been drawn. And 
it's not new. I, I think every gov- in every change of government, you see, you know, the Justice Department get active with prosecutions against previous um, administrations. But in this case, you had never like there had never been a case where they lock up, they go against the children of their enemies. That was a game changer. Right. Okay. So towards the end of 2015. You're obviously getting a bit drained by New York and startup life. Yeah. You're thinking of heading to Columbia for New Year's, right? Your mum's not keen on you to go. <laughs> but you're, it doesn't cross your mind there's any threat to you by traveling to Columbia. Well, it's, you know, it's 2015. By this time, the contract with the government ended, but we had thoroughly invested in, in this email vertical, this secure email vertical. So we decided that Cryptex would build this extension for Gmail that would enable people to send encrypted emails that weren't end-to-end encrypted, but they were more secure than standard Gmail emails. And we raised $500,000 uh, with that with that project. And we launched and we got some coverage by Business Insider. We were, we were in cloud nine. We really felt the wind on our backs and we thought 2016 is going to be an amazing year. So with Star Wars, with Star Wars um, re- being rebooted at the end of 2015, I said, well, I'm going to go to, my- I couldn't find tickets in New York. So I went to Miami. I got tickets in Miami and I went to Miami. And since I was in Miami, my friend said, guy, Meyer, why don't you come to Columbia? We're going to spend New Year's here. And I said, okay, guys, it's just, you know, one short three hour flight from here. So let's do it. So mind you, before I went to Columbia, I had I'd spent two weeks in Jamaica. Um, so I'm Jamaican. And I went to Jamaica to get my investor visa. And that was back in November. And I got my investor visa. And that was kind of like a reassurance that everything was fine. Because, you know, there's no greater vetting process than going through an Amer- American immigration system. So I went to Colombia uh, knowing that I had a case, but not thinking that it was going to get, you know, get more complicated than just a case because I had been abiding with every single, um, every single request by the prosecutors. In fact, the last time I went to Panama was in, was in July, in July, 2015. And I voluntarily went to the prosecutor's office and I said, you know, to first to, to notify myself, to, to have the prosecutor see me. And I, I said, would you like me to answer any questions because I'm here right now and I have to travel back to New York. I don't live here. And I'm happy to answer any questions. And she said, no, there's no, we don't need you. Everything is fine. So, you know, I never expected this to get any more complicated. Right. But you get on the plane. Yeah. You're looking forward to seeing your friends. And yeah. Interpol are waiting for you and have a red notice. Man, I am, I am, it gets funny because I'm in the immigration line in Cartagena at the airport, and I'm on Bumble, right? I am swiping left and right. I'm getting prepared for a fun weekend in Cartagena for New Year's, excited to see my friends, and it's my turn to go up to the counter, and I, I, I go through the process, and they say, do you have a pending case open? I said, yes, in Panama. says, um, well, there seems to be an Interpol red notice to your name. So we're not going to be able to admit you into the country, 
Um, in fact, we're going to have to detain you. And I said, this is, this is not happening. This is probably a joke. Welcome to Cartagena. Have fun. No, I was wrong. Things got, I got very nervous. I got very nervous because I had the voice of my mother in the back of my mind saying, I don't want you to go. I have a bad feeling about this. And I don't know if it's that my mom can predict the future or she calls it upon me, but she always gets it right. So they detained me in Colombia. Um, they they put me into you know they put me into this uh, Cherokee, this Jeep I've seen, Cherokee. I've seen the video. Well, what you first what you saw was when I got to Colum- to, to Bogota, because I was detained right, in okay. Cartagena, and I had to spend one night in Cartagena. In a prison, in well, in, in in a local in a local jail, and I was I you know we had friends um, that that knew people in the government, and we said, well, this is probably a misunderstanding. They're going to be able to clear this up. And so I had I always had hopes that this was going to be you know quickly fixed, and I I was what, wrong. What kind of prison was that? That oh, one that night. Was, what kind of prison was that? That was I would say it would be like the local police station. And there were right. there were about um, six cells, um, and there was only one guy in the in the entire jail. So, and we had separate prisons. So I had to sleep on a slab of cement that night, and there were cockroaches all over. And what's funny is that throughout all of this, I got to keep my suitcase with me, my my um, my hand luggage. So, I've always had two phones. One is an Android and one is on a, uh, an iPhone because I do a lot of testing for my apps. And they took my phone away, but little did they know that in my bag I had another phone. I had an Android. So I kept on communicating with, with my relatives while I was in prison. And this, was, this allowed me to basically sleep that night because, believe it or not, I throughout this entire situation, I, I never lost one minute of sleep. But it really helped that I had... I had a, a communication medium with, uh, with, with, with my family and friends because I wasn't allowed to speak to anyone at this point. And I'm guessing at the, your, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing your mindset at this point is, okay, well, we'll get this figured out tomorrow. It's not going to be a big deal. You know, you've got to go to Bogota for it. Bogota for it. Yeah. And then is, is it when you get off the plane in Bogota and they pick you up again when at what point do you start to realize like okay this is really serious so i get the moment that i feel i feel the heat was when i get off this this um this this flight from cartagena to bogota and i remember the you know the only thing i was feeling sorry for was that i had left my uh, new york yankees hat in the back of the of the police car and then as I walk out of the airport, the gates open up, the automatic doors open up and cameras. Oh, my God. I was all of a sudden, uh, it, it was like Hollywood, but in a bad way. Okay. Paparazzi, it was like at least 30 photographers and, 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 and video recorders and reporters. It was crazy. It really was crazy. But I had to, I kept a very straight face. And because I was very confident that this was just a shame that it was happening, but it was just going to be that, just a shame. And it'll be resolved within hours. But it wasn't. 
I was put in the back of a of, 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 of a of a police car, and I was taken to this FBI jail, exclusive jail of Colombia. And in this jail, there were 12 cells. There were 12 cells that fit two people per cell, but they were fitting four people per cell at this point. And it was it was a small joint. It was an, an L-shaped. I mean, the cells were an L-shape, uh, the, the arrangement. So you had six cells on one side and six cells on the other side, and then a little patio in the center. And it was very pri- it was very private. It was very intimate, I would say. And there were about another 32 people there. From you know, there was an Italian guy. There was a lot of Colombians. Most of them were Colombians. This was like the holding cell for people who have Interpol problems. Okay, so whether you are arriving from an Interpol extradition or awaiting Interpol extradition, that's your limbo. Okay, they call that. Oh, what's the name? You know, I never knew the name of that prison until I left that prison. So I spent three weeks in that prison. I lost about 25, 25 pounds because. And were you aware of the charge at that point? Yes, by the second day, uh, I was able to speak properly with my mother and my family, and and include including my lawyers. And they were able to to loop me into everything that was going on. And their number one claim was that, well, this is illegal. This is against Interpol procedures. Interpol requires that for a red alert, the person be be charged with a crime. I hadn't been charged nor convicted at that point. Um, I was being investigated. So it was a clear violation of the Interpol's rules and procedures. But secondly, Panama approved the request for extradition. So basically, when a person is apprehended uh, with, a, an, with a, an arrest warrant, uh, an Interpol warrant, um, they have to ask the requiring country uh, whether they confirm that they want this person to be extradited or not. Panama had, had accepted. They had verified that they did want the extradition process to go through, despite the fact that our lawyers and our contacts within the government had reached out to the Minister Minister of Foreign Affairs, which is the Vice President, to tell them that Panama cannot extradite Meyer because it's a violation of the 1932 Convention of Montevideo, where basically a lot of countries signed an agreement whereby no person can be can be extradited if they haven't been convicted or charged. So. Um, so it was illegal in many ways, and I was confident that this would all get cleared up. As you can tell by this point, I'm a very optimistic person. I'd never had. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but you're like you're there for three weeks. Yeah. In doesn't sound like a prison that's designed for long term. Yeah. No. You know what facilities did you have within that prison? Well, the facilities. They were very poor, but at least it was intimate. At least it wasn't a jungle. It wasn't mayhem. So the cell was small. It was like a a two-by-six cell in meters, of course. And there were bunk beds. Actually, there were, yeah, there were two bunk beds. And my roommate, quote-unquote, my cellmate was um, was a guy by the name Arias. Arias, it was his last name. I only knew him by his last name. Everyone called him by his last name. 
but he was an ex-cop and he was like wrongfully convicted for something or whatever and he was a very nice fellow very pleasant fellow very he was about 56 years old and he was just a very warm very gentle person and um every morning we had to do cleanup duty so every morning we had to wipe the floors and clean up the entire prison cell the entire jail and basically they would assign it to two cells per day so whenever it was my duty Arias would basically he would he, he would pick up my slack because I was really bad at it and he would be he would basically cover for me um, because I could have gotten in trouble for not you know doing the work properly it wasn't work but it was let's just call it a responsibility um, okay. and that's how the morning started and it was very cold I didn't Listen, I, I packed for Cartagena Beach, okay? Not for Bogota, which is uh, high up in the mountains at about, you know, 10 degrees Celsius, and especially in the mornings. And, and then, then there's the water, the water situation. Oof. Okay, so there's no hot water, but at least there is water. And because there was no hot water, I was always, we had, we had, to, we had to shower in the mornings at five o'clock in the morning. Like and that makes that made no sense to me because it's it's the coldest in the morning. Why would you want to, you know, shower with cold water in the morning? It's not like we have anything else to do during the day. Why can't we? You know, why can't we shower in the afternoon? So throughout the entire time, I was debating with uh, with the custodians, the guards, about how to improve their processes and how to better prison. <laughs> and uh, they all agreed. It made sense, but. They're cameras, and you got to do things because they'll get fired or you know get called upon. So I played ball. You you had two toilets and two showers, and you had you had to you had to you, you had to basically wait till the showers were were available, and you had an hour for the entire prison, for the entire jail. So for the 32 people, you had an hour for everyone to shower. It wasn't it wasn't that bad. It was okay. It's not a not a relaxing shower so it's um it's one that it's a quick shower um food was bad food was very bad food was very bad and um you know i i was co i was kosher so they were serving up pork and i you know like i had eaten bacon but i wasn't a pork eater i didn't like white meat so i had a tough time with the food but you know, once you're hungry, you'll eat whatever you have. And, and I got to that point, believe it or not. This was very much um, a test to the human body. I, I learned to live on, I would say, half of a good meal per day because that's what it was. Um, you would eat at 7 o'clock in the morning, at 11 o'clock in the afternoon, and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 11 o'clock in the morning. But, but you ended up losing a lot of weight. Yeah. I lost a lot of weight, portions were limited, and the food wasn't very nutritious. And uh, I, I, what, what can I say, um, it was, I wasn't the only one losing weight, everyone would lose weight. So it wasn't exclusive to me. And did you have access to your family, to see your family, or were you, how, did you, were you in touch with your family while you were there? I was, and I would say that this these three weeks were the toughest of all because I could only have two calls per day for three minutes at a time. 
and I could only call one person, which meant that I had to pick. And and there were times where I would call the person, and for X Y Z reason, they wouldn't pick up. You wouldn't get a second chance. And in the anxiety, think about this: you're living through this torment. You're living through this this situation that you're unsure about that is really tormenting you every second of the day. And that call is the only thing that can give you peace of mind until the next call. And then they don't pick up the phone. And that was that was the worst. I mean, that was very difficult. It, it really got my anxiety, you know, peak point. And but I, I have to say that you really do learn to manage yourself and to manage your own expectations and and to hear yourself, to hear yourself think. To, to anticipate how you're going to feel and avoid any pitfalls of self-inflicting pain or, uh, you know, I would say psychological traps. Um, so we had the calls. I could see my family once a week on Saturdays. And uh, they w- they, only three family members could come in. And they were able, they would come in at 8 and they could leave at 11. And they were able to bring in food. That was that was a relief because they would bring me, you know, f- you know, quite hearty meals. And I would what I would do was I was starving, but I wouldn't eat it entirely. I, I I would eat only a little bit, and I would put it away and hide it, and I would make that meal last until the next visit. Um, because at this point, it was like the only way to to keep myself healthy. I knew that, you know, you have to basically pace yourself and that's a very difficult thing because you are fighting against your own, you, you know, your, your own humanity. Um, I, I almost felt like I was not a human, but rather I was thinking as an animal, you know, the only objective is to survive. So yeah, I would make these meals last a week. And so it sounds like your life then starts to become about very micro important issues the phone call which is three minutes the small amount of food that you would have every day from the meal your parents would be bringing Uh, they sound like micro moments of pleasure in a very difficult time in your life oh no no doubt and um no doubt you you you've hit the nail on the head because the smallest letter with the fewest word words would say, would mean the world to me. And at that point, I, you know, I wanted some entertainment. I want books and there were no books in English and I don't read in Spanish. Um, but they got me books in Spanish. And that was for me, that was, Oh my God, the world just got bigger. It was amazing. You know, you, you just tend to, to appreciate the little things. And I think it's normal. Anyone that goes through a situation of pain, anxiety, of depression, or or even, you know, financial distress, you tend to appreciate the little things make things last longer. And I think it's, you know, every I think it's innate in human nature. That's the reality. Okay. So at what point did you then realize you were going to end up at a La Picotta prison? Is that the one? Oh, I never ended up. Yeah, I, yeah. So I never, I never, I never, I never thought I was going to end up there because they had approved bail. They they had approved bail for for my liberation, 
and it was set at $100,000. Bail is traditionally set at 10% of the value of the contract. Um, and mind you, 20,000 was a 20, so 20,000. They went up to 100,000, which is crazy, but thank God my, cam- my family came through for me and they posted bail. And at that point, I was, you know, I was saying my goodbyes to everyone, you know, thinking next morning I would wake up and go to the Four Seasons with the rest of my family and enjoy. No, I was wrong. I was woken up the next morning and sent to um, maximum, the, the maximum security prison of Colombia. And that was a game changer. That was a game changer. So, so you woke up and you didn't realize you were going. And then, no. what? Somebody comes in and says, "We're moving you." Pack up. Yeah. Here's a here's here's a plastic bag, a plastic trash bag, and put your stuff there. You're going to to prison. That's that pretty serious, be- though, right? It is because no one gets alerted, and they they do this for security purposes. They don't tell relatives. They don't tell anyone because. It's very common in Colombia that that prisoners transports get hijacked by you know drug cartels or mafias and this and that. So I it very much felt like I was being kidnapped. I wasn't able to call my 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 family to tell them what was going on. I wasn't sure whether they knew where I was going or where was I going to be once I was there. It was it was a game changer. For 3 weeks I had struggled to get accustomed to this prison life. And I managed to, to to get accustomed to it, and then all of a sudden, they pulled the rug under my feet, and and all my letters got left behind. I wasn't able to take any of the letters from my girlfriend at the time, from my relatives, from my family, from my co-founders, my employees, my team members, everyone. Um, that was I would read them every day. It gave me peace of mind. And it gave me hope and strength, and it was left behind. But. You know, the traditional view that everybody has, whether it's films or documentaries of South American prisons, is that they are crazy, scary places. Something I couldn't myself even imagine preparing myself for. Was that crossing your mind when you were being taken there? Yeah, 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 very much. That was what I had in mind. And listen, I... I watched all seasons of Prison Break, and probably the one that most stuck to, to my mind was Prison Break, the Panama, when they had like, a, you know, a whole season about escaping a Panamanian prison, and yeah, that's what exactly what I had in mind. I had imagined, you know, Prison Break meets Shawshank Redemption. That's what I had in mind. I said, shit, man, here comes here comes the real the real test, the real challenge, and I. You know, while I was being transported, um, I I really I couldn't see where I was going because the car I was in the back of a of, of a bus and the windows were covered, and I I only knew that I was that I had arrived after an hour um, when I when I heard the yelling and screaming as if there was some type of riot going on. I said, "Is there a riot?" They said, "No, no, no. That's just daily life." And I got scared. Oh shit! I got shit scared. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they walk you into the prison. They check you. Walk in. me into the prison. While they're walking you, okay, there are there's like a big fence. It's the prison is not 
it's not laid out um, horizontally, but rather vertically. The, there are 12 floors per building. And in the building where I was taken into, it, you know, you had all the prisoners looking at the new bait from every floor. And everyone was banging it. on the fence. Nue- is it Nuevo? Um, Nuevo? Well, they, they had Nuevos, 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 but they were saying Mono. Okay. Mono in Colombian, in Colombian slang, mono means blonde. So they were specifically, I wasn't the only one that was being taken to prison. There were like about 12 people behind me. But mono was the one that everyone was pointing towards. So that got scary. Number two, the, the news media really destroyed me, um, positioned me. They, they put a target in my back because th- when... When this whole situation started and I got detained in, in Cartagena, um, news reports uh, started um, started saying that I had I had stolen twelve million dollars from the government, that the contract was worth thirteen or twelve million dollars, that I was the nephew of the ex president, and, and with this white, pale white face with blue eyes and blonde hair, listen, that's you got a target on your back when you're going into prison. Um, and, and that, that didn't make it any easier at all because so you're, you've I, got a, you're worrying about the risk of both violence, but rape. Well, I, rape was the last thing I was thinking about. I was thinking about extortion. I was okay. thinking, I was thinking about how could this get more complicated in the sense that if the architects of this entire case are behind this. It's very easy for them to make my life even more impossible within prison. Okay, I see. It's actually ideal, I would say. Because at the end of the day, you know, my father had even, my father was living in Miami at the time. And he said, you know, I'll go to Panama and turn my, I'll turn myself in. I I don't know what they want with me, but I'll go if it, if it gets you free. I said, there's no guarantee that they're going to set you free. So, you know what, please don't do me any favors. It's you know it's bad enough to have one one family member in prison, worse to have two. So thank you, but no. So what they wanted to do was squeeze me. They wanted to squeeze me and squeeze my family into rendition, and and that's why they sent me to La Picota. Um, I was expecting that I was gonna I was gonna last maybe a week in, in La Picota before I was liberated because of the bail, but. Through a technical, well, not a technical, an arbitrary decision of the judge in Panama, they decided not to give me my liberation, though I had bail, because liberty, liberation, was meant to be done in Panama. That is, I am not detained in Panama, therefore, I cannot be freed in Colombia, which was a stupid argument because the the status of a free person is 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 universal. That is, if you're a free person in your country, you're a free person everywhere. Free person everywhere else you go, and that's a fundamental human right. So, but it it didn't matter whether whether they were right or wrong, as long as they had any argument to delay the process, then due process would 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 extend this martyrdom for another, you know, two to three months. But still, you ended up in was it five or six months you were in. I was in La Picota a total of five months. Uh, total detention, total arrest, you know, prison sentence was six months. But right. you know, I just said the word sentence. 
And that's a key word because everyone I was in prison with had a sentence, okay? They all knew how long they were there for. For me, I had been living with with no timeline and with, with you know, the cycle of hope and dismay, hope and dismay, you know, I was very certain I was going to leave next week and then next week comes and if it's not one thing, it's the other. But you know what? Next week. And then I'll be let down again. And it made it very difficult. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like death through a thousand paper cuts. Okay, so go back to your first day. Yeah. You checked in. You go through the due process. You're paraded. You're, what, taken up to your cell? I wish I could... I don't have the picture with me, but I'm going to send it to you. I'm taken up to my cell, right. and and immediately, my stuff, the little, the few stuff that I had with me, gets stolen. They get taken away, and um, everyone's banging on their cell do- on on the doors of their cells. So so these aren't uh, bars, but rather they're you know big metal doors with just a, one one square hole through which they can look out. And they they were banging on the doors, and sh- shouting stuff about, you know, who had first dibs on raping the blonde kid? Isn't that the the kid with the twelve million dollars? We're gonna we're gonna extort him with the cartel, the Medellin cartel. Uh, no, I mean it was scary. It was scary. And um, what was even scarier was that I wasn't put into my prison cell when I first came in. I was taken into the head honcho cell. I said, shit. What, the main prison prisoner? The guy. The guy guy in the film that's always the main guy. Yeah, the guy who's in control, right? So they take me to his cell. And his name is El Negro. He was actually a quite pleasant fellow. He welcomed me. He said, everything's going to be fine. And with him was his cellmate, which was called El Buo. The owl. And they were both from Medellin. And one was the, the, the leader of the criminal gangs of Medellin, the El Negro. And the other one was, he was just one of the leaders, but not the main leader. But he had about 600 deaths under his belt. And he would, he would laugh at the fact that the subpoena from the U.S. says that he's wanted for six deaths. If only they knew that there's 600 bodies buried under such and such and such place. Like, they would brag about this. So I, I was scared, but I was keeping a very, you know, I, I was keeping a poker face on because it was the only thing I had going. Uh, my, fa- my, <laughs> my, my, my face, this white face, I was the only white kid in this prison, okay? But it and must I was the have only been, kid. But it must have been pretty surreal, You've gone from New York. Um, were you living in Manhattan on the island? I was living in Soho, yeah. So you, you've gone from living in Soho, building a startup, to essentially that thing we've seen in a film where you're, the guards are taking you to the main guy in a prison and it's, uh, they're, they're po- their poles apart. Like, yeah. I, I'm like wondering what's going through your head at this moment. Are, are you panicking? Can, is it too surreal to comprehend? It's, you know, it's um, it was so surreal that I I always felt it was it was something that was bound to end quick because it was too surreal to be true. 
and and you know we read we hear stories about people that have been imprisoned illegally or you know wrongfully imprisoned and and we watch movies and we always say well it's just the movies and i'm one of those guys that says that and all of a sudden i'm living the movie i'm i'm living the story and i couldn't believe it you know i i it was very hard for me to believe um i I was also very worried about what people were saying about me. What were my friends thinking? What are what are, what about how is this affecting my company? What are the VCs going to think? Are they going to drop out? You know, what's this, what's going to happen? I was very nervous. I was very worried for the the ripple effects of the situation. Even if it was resolved within a day, I was very worried about that. Um, and so this head honcho guy, you you've met him. What's the what's the structure of that meeting? What's what's it for? Is so it to set you up? It's not it's not to set me up. Uh, it's basically to to it's an initiation meeting. Okay, so there are basically two head honchos in the cell block. The cell block has thirty two cells, and it fits three people per cell. And this is exclusively the extradition cell block, which means. That these are this is where they put the people that are so bad that they're wanted internationally, okay? And this guy, you know, he wanted first dibs at having me in his clan instead of having the other guy uh, lure me into his clan. And you know, he was very nice, very pleasant. He lent me his phone so I could WhatsApp with my mother. I hadn't used I hadn't used WhatsApp in in four weeks almost. I hadn't used the phone in four weeks. I hadn't listened to music in music in four weeks. It was the most disconnected I've ever been since being born, I think. I mean, unbelievable. So I got the phone and I sent a selfie to my mom with these two guys. And I'm smiling and I said, Ma, everything's fine. Except I don't know that in the other side, they're shitting their pants because there are these two thugs beside me and I just came into a maximum security prison they're thinking, well, there goes his virginity. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I spoke to my mom also. Thank God for WhatsApp calling because I was able to call and I, would, I was able to speak to her. And, and my, my focus was really transmitting peace of mind to my family because they were my support system. If they would break, then I would have no one to support me. So okay. I had to transmit even if it was not entirely true. So the so the how does the initiation end? Like, are there any conditions to you? Are there Go, any warnings? Yes, um, warnings included: don't be stingy, share your meals, share your 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 funds, share your assets. They also said, if you need anything, come to me. If you if you get things on your own, then that's going to be a call to war that's going to show me that you're not uh, loyal to me if you speak to the other people from the other clan then i'm also going to assume that you're not being loyal and you don't want to not be loyal to me and then he ma- he gave me some example a guy about a guy who got sent to uh, a solitary confinement by his by his request um, because he wasn't loyal i don't know if that was true or not but uh, it definitely felt true the guy he didn't flinch when when talking about this and what was most weird about the entire situation was that the Buo guy, while I was talking to El Negro, 
he was just sitting there looking at me and slicing an apple with with a, a marble knife. So they had marble knives in prison because it w- they wouldn't get detected in the prison in, in, in the metal detectors. It was unbelievable. I mean, I was shocked. There was just, like knives were normal. Forget about um, about like makeshift knives. These were actual legit sushi knives. But the slicing of the apple is there to intimidate you, right? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, it's exactly what you're picturing. It's that. And that's how right. I'm feeling. That's how it's being emitted. And uh, I got the message. Right. And so, and then are you then taken to your cell? Then I'm taken to my cell. And I'm okay. introduced to my two cellmates, Alex and Cuba. They were both Colombians. And they were both very short fellows. Um, Cuba was short and um, thick. He was the muscle of, of, of the cell. And he, they called him Cuba because he had spent eight years in prison in Cuba. And um, so he, they just gave him the name Cuba. And the other guy, Alex, he was a very pleasant guy, very courteous fellow, unassuming, non-threatening. And he was about in his 40s. Also, Cuba was around his 40s. I was, by far, I was the youngest pe- person in, in, in the cell block. But do you as a cell then become a unit yes. as a pack together? Yes, but okay. not immediately. And then at what point are you essentially, I don't know, I'm trying to think, imagine you going into a courtyard and everyone's together. Does yeah. that happen on the first day or do you have to do a first night's sleep? No, I have to do the first night's sleep because they only bring new inmates at night for security right. purposes. Okay. okay? Where ev- when everyone's locked up. And so, so that night they gave me the run, the run of the mill. Uh, my roommates, roommates, <laughs> my cellmates, uh, they gave me the run of the mill and they explained how everything worked. And, um, but they were also very hesitant because there was a second factor that everyone was scared about that didn't play to my favor. My, my complexion made me look like a CIA operative and people thought I was an insider. So people weren't open to me. In fact, it was, I was the elephant in the room. So they weren't upfront. They weren't very welcoming initially, but eventually I gained their trust and they still tease me even till today. They say, you know, you think you can talk to your friends at the CIA uh, to loosen the the, the noose on me. No, they'll joke about it. So, yeah, that was the initiation. The, the first night was fine. I slept well. I had no problem sleeping. Uh, mind you, I did sleep on a cement, a slab of cement. That was it. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have um, a mattress or anything. But next day, that was supposed to be provided. But um, and that's a different story. That got stolen. <laughs> so when, do, when are you first thrown into the mix of the jail that morning next morning okay. they wake everyone up at 4:30 in the morning and and this jail is not intimate this is not private and this is not nice everything is methodical everything is uh, there's a structure there's a process to everything and the day starts with showers so water the, there's only water running water for three hours a day, one hour in the morning, 
one hour at midday, and one hour in the afternoon at around four. Which means that you have about 96 people that have to shower within three hours. And But the problem is actually, no, you can only shower within, in the morning. That's the other problem. I could get away with showering in the afternoon in the other jail. But once I was here, everything was under control. If I were to shower in the afternoon, then they would rat me out, for example. And I would get into trouble with the guards and this and that. And it was a problem. So showering was a problem. I, I used to shower, shower every other day, maybe every three days including, because I, I, there was, you didn't sweat. You didn't move that much. There was really no reason to shower. You weren't going to see anyone. I didn't stink. So I, I, you know, I, 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 I hedged my wrists at the shower. So by 30, by, by one third, two thirds, sorry. So that's how the day started. And that's how everyone started looking at me. Um, we had to line up. Uh, they would do, um, they would count all the prisoners every, every morning. Three times a day. So in the mornings, the first thing you do when you wake up is you stand outside your prison cell, and they're supposed to count everyone in every cell. Everyone started looking at me, even the guard. Like when the guard goes around, it, it was in the shape of like a triangle, a socialist triangle. And when he went around the perimeter counting every cell, he stopped and looked at me and said, well, you guys got new beef. Very good for you. As in like, you guys are going to have fun. So like, you know, that's when I realized that these guards weren't fucking around. These guards were not nice guards. They weren't respectful guards. They were, they were probably as bad. I I could say that today, the difference between the guards and the prisoners was the uniform. That's it. So when we, when was the first bit of intimidation where somebody started, did you, were you pushed into a fight early on? Yeah, the first yeah the first one was when I got my pillow and my mattress. Um, it was taken away, so they'll take away pillows and mattresses to sell them to other people whose pillows and mattresses have been stolen from. So uh, they artificially create demand, which is magnificent. Um, so they they stole my pillow, and I walked up to the guy who had my pillow. I said, "Give me my pillow." The guy says, "That's not your pillow. It's my pillow." I said, "No, it's my pillow." And he says, "Then why is it in my hand?" Oh, I said. Yeah, you're right. Why isn't it in your hand? So I took it from his hand, and he immediately punched me. And um, I, I punched back. I got into a fight. That was my first fight. My, my, nose, my nose was broken, no doubt about that. I was bleeding. But, but I, was, I demonstrated that I was no pushover. That was a very important, that was a very important event. And um, at that point, I'm feeling so low emotionally that do what you will to me, I give zero fucks, okay? I'm already getting fucked by my own government. What do I care about breaking, you know, about a fist fight? Come on. Um, so that was basically my attitude. I kind of like a guy who has nothing to lose at this point. And to the point that I even got into a fight with a guard because they, so they would do these random searches. Everyone, they would call everyone to the center of the, of, of the, what you call it, the cell block, and they would do searches inside the rooms. And when I came back from the search, everything was destroyed. But I didn't find my calling cards. And it turns out the call- calling cards are the currency in prison. And I didn't find them. 
So I said, okay, who searched this room? Who searched this, this cell? And with all the, all the authority in the world, I started questioning the guards. Who was there with you? And then when I identified the right one, I pushed him. I said, you give me my, my, um, my calling cards. And he pushed me back. I immediately punched him. I got into a fight with a guard. And that, that doesn't sound sensible. No, not at all. But, but it, was, it was very much necessary because by that time, I was three months in and I had demonstrated no loyalty, quote unquote, to, uh, to El Negro. So I had to demonstrate that I, I didn't care for their rule of law, that I was not there to play the game. I was just there to do my time. I didn't want to play on the novella. So for all, all those who don't want to do novella, you know, there's me, okay? I'm a very fair guy. I don't get in trouble with anyone. I don't get into fights or this and that. But if you cross a line, you'll pay for it. And that was the, the, that was, that's New York attitude. Right, that's okay. ba- I was very New Yorkish when I was there. When did you start to feel like you were settling into a, a normal life within prison? Like a routine? I know what's going on. This is, this is just normal well, life now. Yeah, when I started joking to my mother... So, you know, I had this phone, I got this phone contraband in it into prison. Everyone had phones, but they all had, you know, these um, disposables because these phones would get picked up by the guards and immediately taken away. And I had an idea to, to, to bring a phone in that could be hidden in a way where no one would find it. And I considered the Samsung Galaxy S7 because it could it's waterproof. Go exactly. It was waterproof. And it was a smartphone. I didn't just care to speak. I wanted to interact. And that would have been, that was a game changer. Everything changed the minute that I got that phone in. And I would hide that phone in water. And the minute we had the first search, it was the moment of truth. Everyone, will, everyone knew that I had that phone. So everyone was, was looking out to see if they found my phone or not. And when they didn't, it was Eureka for the entire prison block. Everyone said, guys, the game is changing. We're now going to get waterproof phones, and now we're going to be able to use, see movies, use WhatsApp, speak with our relatives at, at, at no cost, because calls would cost you about $2 a minute. So but you how imagine, did you get the phone in? Ah, you can get anything into prison. Remember, right. guards, guards are no different than the, than the prisoners themselves. At the end of the day, they're there for 48-hour shifts. So they learn, they behave, they interact, and they start to befriend the prisoners. It's part of their daily life. So um, they're not favors, but they'll, they'll take money for it. And typically what's brought into prison is drugs, right? Um, so you pay per weight and volume. Kind of like DHL, but scarier. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, there's a great story about bringing something. And the first thing I actually brought in wasn't a phone. The first thing I brought in was a GMAT book because all my, all my Sudokus were stolen. The, everyone kept stealing my Sudokus. So I said, I'm going to entertain myself with something that no one else can find entertainment in. So I got a GMAT book in. And when I told the guard how much, how much uh, it weighed, he said, are you bringing a container of Coke? What is this? So that cost me about $2,000 because that was a going rate for, for a three-pound block of cocaine. But how does the money transfer happen? Yeah, that's interesting. So you go to basically like a Western Union, 
someone out someone outside goes to Western Union and deposits money in name of somebody else. So a, right. So it's third parties of both parties. So you've got your phone. Yeah. You're yeah. starting to build friends. You're starting to get into prison life. Yeah. Also, you still got this company going on at the same time in New York. I mean, who was carrying that on? <laughs> How did you have any communication with them? So I was able to speak on the phone. It was dear and expensive, uh, but I was able to communicate over the phone. And um, Luis, my co-founder at the time, was running Cryptex, but he was he was a CTO. Um, he wasn't very much the you know the business developer or the f- the face of the company to the to the investors or to our clients. So, but he did a great job. So he was holding the helm. No one in the company at the time left the company. No one left the company. Um, everyone was very was was very close, and everyone was very supportive of what what was going what was going on. And you know, I I, I wanted the phone because my my utmost concern at this point was not that I wasn't going to leave prison. I knew that I was going to leave eventually, but what was I going to leave towards? Like what's the, what's going to What's there going to be there for me when I leave prison? So I wanted to take care of Cryptex so that when I left prison, there still be a company to, to go to. Yeah, so what kind of... Were you still making commercial phone calls from prison? Were you product testing from your phone? So, so the, problem with, the problem with the currency being the calling cards is that currency could be consumed. So a calling card that had, that had, had the the pin number in the back scratched off was no longer useful currency. So people had, people were using cell phones and my goal was to no longer use a calling card other than to exchange for goods and services within prison. And I got this SIM card from a Colombian, you know, prepaid data provider, cell phone provider. And it turns out I I mistakenly found a hack that if I reset the data usage analytics on the phone, on the device, I could have unlimited data. So basically they were, they were using the device physical memory to peg the data, to, you know, to limit your data consumption, which is so stupid. I, I hope they're listening to this because they are losing money left, right, and center because of prisoners. <laughs> so I found that out <laughs> and I started with popcorn time. Yeah, that was number one. Got my popcorn time, started downloading movies, catching up with um, with Civil War, Captain America Civil War, and Deadpool. I was very excited for that. But more importantly, I got my WhatsApp back, and my pseudonym on WhatsApp was Schofield, which was great. <laughs> so I would, I would message... From prison break. That's right. That's right. I was half as cool, but... Very much Schofield. Um, although, but let me ask you something. Then, like, it's a, it's a, this is going down a slightly separate track, right? You've seen the film. Oh, sorry, you've seen the series Prison Break. You've called just get self Schofield. Just out of interest, were you? Did you start to have a look and consider, like, if I was going to break out, this is how I would do it? Did that stuff cross your mind at all? No, no, because. Up until then, I hadn't done a single thing wrong, right? I hadn't done anything okay. illegal. So if I were to do something like that, then no, I mean what I'm what I'm asking is not whether you would, right? Did, like, did you just oh, did you have a look? Say, out of interest, if I could get out, this is what I would do. Peter, 
no doubt. I mean, remember, from day one, I started telling prisoner, prison guards how they could improve on their prison system. And I could see <laughs> faults everywhere. In the changing of the guards, they would, they would leave literally doors. I have, I have a video. I have a great video of me leaving my, uh, my cell block, going into the uh, electricity room of the cell block, and shutting down the breakers and unlocking all the doors to the cell block. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, and, and then I end the video going back into my, into my cell saying, who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? You know, kind of like you know, laughing about the situation that I could escape. You know, there you go. I just, I just did something that, you know, could lead to an escape. But I'm going back into my prison because I'm a well-behaved boy. What can I say? Um, okay, so, so anyway, you're, uh, you've got your phone, you've got your popcorn time. But specifically for the company, what, what role essentially were you doing then for the company? So my role was in directing the, the repurposing of Cryptex, the app that we sold to the government for consumer use. So it, the, the one thing that I had in mind was it, you know, when all this started, I, I, it very much reminded me of when, um, when Zuckerberg denied the, the, the million-dollar offer from Microsoft to buy his Synapse software, and he, he gave it away for free. Um, it, was, you know, it was my moment to do something of great impact. So what, what better way to draw attention to the, the, the illegalities that are going on than to, to launch this, this app for free? And it was also a big way to say, fuck you to the government. Now, nobody pays. You paid, nobody pays from now on. So my goal was being the pixel, the pixel Nazi and the, ar- not the architect, but the, uh, the director of the development process, right? Um, so we would get on Skype calls every morning, in the afternoons, they would do screen shares. You know, I have to say, from an Android phone, you really don't need a computer. I could... You know, I can unzip files and everything. It was great. I could do everything except for a Photoshop, but but it was great. You know, my partner was uh, my partner at the time, Luis, was very nervous that drawing attention, drawing more attention to this situation would negatively affect impact the company. I said, you know, once you're once you're you've hit rock bottom, the only way to go is up. So at this point, let's just go up, and that was. That was the whole premise of this, um, because we had done nothing wrong, and it was just shocking that we were, we had gone through this. And lo and behold, uh, serendipity takes place, and all of a sudden, the story breaks with Panama Papers, and that was icing on the cake. Now, anything with the name Panama on it would sell, in, ter- in terms of PR. Okay. Um, how did that? How did that affect you, though, specifically? Well, in that. A lot of criticism was drawn upon the government's response to the situation, and I wanted to capitalize on that criticism by saying, "Hey, that's not the only illegal thing that these people have done. They've also they're doing this, this, and that, the other." And I fit the profile. I didn't fit the profile of a corrupt official because, by the way, they were investigating me for embezzlement, which is which means that. You know, you, you, you had to have worked for the government. I never worked for the government. So how could they be investigating me for embezzling funds if I didn't, I wasn't employed by the government. It was all too crazy. 
And I wanted to draw, you know, to shine a light on this and, and thank God the story was picked up um, by Del Cameron, who was at the Daily Dot back then. He's now at Gizmodo. And Tom, Tom Fox Brewster at Forbes, who writes on crypto, uh, cryptography and security. And um, yeah, I mean, they were very keen on the story. And I would have calls with them over Skype from that phone while I was in prison. It was, you know, like my, Adele and I really drew, really built this personal relationship through that situation. And I have a great amount of respect to him for taking, for having the balls to write a story with someone who's in prison who hasn't been proven innocent. I think it takes a lot of guts to do that. Was there any part of the prison life you actually did enjoy? Yes, of course. Let, let me explain something to you, Peter. People take sabbaticals after a life, you know, a life of hard work. I was, I was not even 30 and I was in my sabbatical. I had nothing to worry about. Just think about it from this perspective. There's nothing that could go wrong because you're already in the most wrong of situations. Okay. That's it. Number two, I could, I, I could replay all the video games that I, I used to play when I was a kid. And Nintendo 64, so I had an emulator, and I was catching up with all those games that I've always wanted to play. And I was catching up on my reading, I was studying for the GMAT, even though I didn't want to go to business school. I said, you know, I never had I would have never had time to do any of this. And I think in that sense, believe it or not, it was a blessing in disguise to just be able to sit back. We all you know, life is so structured. The life that everyone lives these days is so structured. We, we go to preschool, we go to school, we go to, you know, to, uh, to, to college, and then, you know, we go to work, and, 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 then, and then we get married, and, you know, life is very structured. All of a sudden, this was a break. This, this, this was a break from life. And, and though it was a, a pretty penny to pay, I've, I did find happy moments and things to laugh about, because, Listen, man, I think humor is number one. It's, it's very important. For every situation, you can find something to laugh about. So, so, for example, my mom wrote to me one morning and she says over WhatsApp, Hey, my darling, how'd you wake up today? I said, imprisoned. I thought that was hilarious. I took a screenshot. I published that on, on Instagram. I thought it was great. I thought you, Because also, if you're having a fun time, if you're joking about it, that means everyone else can joke about it. And have you... Um, I- have you stayed in touch with anyone from the prison? Were there yeah. any personalities, well, friends you made? Yeah, so Alex, so my roommates, they're, oh my God, this is, so two things. So Alex, he's still there. And his story is, is unbelievable because he used to build boats, fiberglass boats. And his family was kidnapped by the drug cartel. And he was forced to build these semi-submersible submarines for the drug cartel. Otherwise, they would kill his family. So he did it. And they, he built like 20 of these sub- submarines for them. And then he got his family back and he left. He left Medellin. I think he was somewhere else. He went to Barranquilla or somewhere. And then when they caught, when the, in, when, when the, when the U.S. Coast Guard caught one of these boats, they interrogated the guy. They who built it? Said this guy built it, and and he's got no def- he's got no defense to prove his case. 
because there's no proof that his wife was 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 kidnapped. But he doesn't. He also doesn't fit the bill. He's never been related to drugs. He's never like he was just a humble guy that worked on the docks. And the guy, he's kept in touch with me, and he writes to me from different phones all the time. Sometimes I'll write to him, and he, I won't get a reply because they found his phone, and now he got he has to get a new phone. But we're very much in touch. It makes a big difference for these people who are in prison to just speak to someone that's outside. You tell them what you're doing, what you've done in your day, and they live vicariously through you. You, right. They really authentically feel happy that you went for dinner with your girlfriend, that your birthday is tomorrow night with all your friends. They, really, they, they, can, they can really be happy for you. You feel it. Um, now, here's a funny bit. Cuba, the other guy? He was extradited to Miami. And this story is unbelievable because he was put in a prison cell with Ricardo Martinelli, the ex-president of Panama. That, that is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Yeah, that was, that was hilarious. And that's how, I, that's, how, that's how I got to know that Cuba was in Miami because Martinelli's relatives told me that Cuba was with them. It's crazy. Okay, so so you settled into prison life. You're carrying on building your company. You're getting on okay with people. The legal process is carrying on. And then June 22nd, you're, you're thinking you're going to be released, but actually it was a trap for immigration officers, right? Well, I was woken up that morning and... Um, and it was just a normal day, any other day. By 9 o'clock, a guard comes in, like the worst of worst guards. He was a Nazi. And the guy says, pack up your stuff, you're leaving. And I said, oh, shit, not this again. Because they never say where you're going. Remember, when they, they, when they took me to the Picota, they just said, you're leaving. Um, and they said the same thing this time around. So pack up your stuff, you're leaving. And I said, well, this means I'm going to Panama. Okay, extradition, extradition, extradition process is on. So I said, "Give me five minutes. Let me put my things together, and I'll meet you outside." And he says, "Fine." So is this where you had your uh, turtle outfit? That is correct. So there's a great story to the whole per- turtle outfit. So the president of Panama has, for a long time, been called the turtle because he's slow and gets nothing done. And you know, I consider this guy had a laugh at me. I think it's about time I have a laugh at him. If he's going to extradite me, then I'm going to get there with a Ninja Turtle outfit. And that's how I left prison. I got my Ninja, Ninja Turtle outfit on. I took a, one last picture with all my, with all my uh, cellmates. And, and I went on. And I took my phone with me. And it was hidden between my clothes. And then they were checking my clothes. I had like two bags, two separate bags. And on the way down... Going down the stairs, they say, well, how do you feel now that you're going to be a free man? What's your first meal? And I said, wait, what? And they said to me, yeah, this is, you're, you're, you're going free. We couldn't say anything up there because um, it might put you in jeopardy, but yeah, you're going free. Um, and the judge issued um, your warrant for your liberation. I said, wow, this is amazing. I, 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 I was shocked. I could not believe it. I mean, I had been living for six months with just recurring letdowns. And to a point where I not I didn't lose hope, but I stopped hoping. 
I learned to live comfortably with the situation I was in. So it was very hard for me to believe that I was finally leaving. So I'm being, I'm being taken out and, uh, with a quick, you know, uh, with a quick hand, I change my phone from one pocket to the other and they don't realize that I have a phone with me and I'm leaving prison and there are these guards, these immigration guards. And I thought it was part of the process. And they start having a quarrel right outside the building. I'm still in the count in the compound, but outside of the building where I was locked up for six months. It was, this was the first time I I had felt the sun. By the way, there was no outside in this prison. There's no such thing as outside time. It's it's like a Las Vegas casino. There was no courtyard. No courtyard. It's like a Las Vegas casino. It looks exactly the same at, in the day as it looks at and looks like in the night. There's always lights on, all fluorescent right. lighting. Well, God knows, man. But um, I was very happy to feel the sun, and then I'm hearing a quarrel go on between the prison guards and immigration. And they quickly pull me back into the prison building, and then I'm surprised to find my lawyer. And um, my lawyer explained to me what was going on. He says, "My, they're not supposed to be here. They want to, they want to take you into custody and put you on a plane to Panama." And this is illegal, and this can't be done. And the guy, so so they start talking with the guards about, you know, what can they do about this? They said the only thing they can do is they can kick immigration out of the prison compound because they really had no legal right to be there. So they did that. And at this point, <laughs> immigration is waiting right outside the, the fence of the main prison gate. And they're looking for the guy in green, the little, you know, the, the little green guy. And my... And my lawyer cleverly says, Maya, we're going to do something. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but we're going to walk through that front door. And you're not going to be detained. You're, you're going to walk into a cab immediately. He said, you're crazy. He says, yes. Just put on normal clothes, put on some jeans, sneakers, and a hat. And I said, okay, well, you say so. So I packed up my stuff. I, I, I changed my clothes, and I shit you not. I passed through the main gate. And these guys are still staring inside, looking for the guy in green. And at that point, I go to a sushi restaurant to meet with my to, to to meet with my family, and we're all excited and we're all hysterically happy. I mean, I cannot. Ex- so that must have been a great moment. Oh, Peter, you have no idea, man. You don't like. It's honestly, it's the happiest moment of my life, probably of of the life of in everyone in my family. Everyone was so happy, so excited. Um, it was like the culmination of months of suffering and sleepless nights. And um, what was funny was but that. Look, what's that? I'm like looking at you now, and you're saying it's like the happiest moment of your life. But your eyes, you can see in your eyes, it's obviously hugely emotional as well. You know, I I do look back at it, and it's uh, I, you know, I didn't. I cried only once through the entire experience. I was very much, I'm, I'm very much a, a person who's in control of their emotion. When I saw my family, um, I didn't cry then, but every time I remember that moment, I, I do tear because um, it just reminds me that, that we, we live a daily life where we're focused on news, on work, on technologies, on the next big thing. And it's really family that, is, that, that creates value around our lives. Because when shitty things like like this happen, whether it's health, 
monetary, legal, you name it. It's family that sticks by you, that makes you feel that there's a purpose to, to live for, and not all is lost. And that, honestly, every time I think about that, I think about this. Right. Okay, so next up, you're, uh, you apply for asylum, right? I apply for asylum because it was the only way to get immigration out of our, uh, off our backs. Under the asylum process, you cannot be deported from a country. But the important part wasn't actually getting asylum. I wanted to go back to New York. I wanted to go back to, you know, to my daily life. Um, the important thing about the asylum process is once the asylum process finishes, whether it's denied or accepted, you can willfully take a plane and go to wherever you want. Okay? So, you know, I was there for three months. Uh, I, so I leave, I come out of prison in June. I, and, and then it's, it's September now. And I'm walking down the streets uh, of Colombia and I am picked up by a police, a policeman and put in the back of a, a truck. And they, they, are, they are flooring the car as if they had stolen the bank. I didn't know what was going on. I called my lawyer and he said that they had denied the, the petition for asylum. And, right. and I said, well, how can they be deporting me? This is arbitrary. This is illegal. It's, it goes against you know, the UN's uh, asylum treaty or whatever. And he says, um, it's completely illegal, but it's happening. So we have to just look for a solution. They spoke to everyone in the country, from the, the president to the owner of the, of the airline that, that, that they were going to take me into to, to Panama. And I was, I was honest, I was just disconnected. I had no passport with me. I have nothing. I had one phone this time around because I was walking around. Like, I, didn't happen to, I didn't have the two phones with me. And they had taken the phone away so i was disconnected for about four hours and then i put i'm put on this plane that's going to panama they sit me in the back of the plane with two custodians and yeah uh, they sent me to panama we arrive at around midnight and they wait till the entire plane uh deplanes and then two policemen from panama uh, two panamanian policemen come in and they take custody of me they take me through some back door, down some stairs, into the actual tarmac, and they put me in the back of a truck. And they they leave the airport through some, you know, some weird gate, and they take me to a detention center in Panama. And at this point, Panama's going nuts. Everyone knows what's going on. I had filmed this entire situation on Facebook Live. So as I was being taken to the airport in, in Colombia, I, I was filming it and I was telling people, this is what's happening. This is crazy. I can't believe it's happening. This is the definition of Banana Republic. And by, by this time, everyone was waiting for me at the airport. Um, you had protesters, um, you had supporters, and you had relatives and friends. But little did they know that they were going to take me to directly to a detention center. And this was completely illegal because at this point, there's no, there's no warrant for my arrest. There's absolutely nothing uh, for which they can arrest me for. But they did it. They, 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 they made me sleep for one night uh, in a prison, in a jail in the city of Panama. And then the next morning, they took me to, the, to, to court uh, to see the judge. The judge took a look at my face and says, 
you can go. Literally, that was all that happened. It was basically as if, as if they were making a statement. Like, you see what I can do? Now you can go. And I was, we were shit scared because what, there was no guarantee that they would protect my basic human rights or my constitutional rights. In fact, ev- all evidence pointed towards the fact that they would violate my, my human rights even further than they had already. So it was very scary. It was a very scary situation. And of course, my mother, she had to say the I told you so. Because at that <laughs> time, I was, living, I was living at the hotel. I was living in the Four Seasons, and she had rented an apartment. And she says, well, I think you should come and live in the apartment. I said, Ma, you know, I've had roommates for the last six months. I'd like to live on my own. I know you're not you're good company, but I want to live on my own. And she said, if only you had been living in my apartment, they wouldn't have gone to the hotel. So, you know, she had to go with the I told you so thing. So the first thing I said uh, when I saw her, because she wasn't even in Colombia or Panama when this all went down. She was in Miami. And she said, I, I, the first thing I said was, ah, I'm sorry, I know you told me so. And she said, I told you so. <laughs> but that's uh, a mother's job, right? That is, that I wouldn't expect anything other than that. And I can imagine for your mother, this has been a very stressful time for her as well. Oh, you know what, Peter? I think she's the one that suffered it the most. Because think about yeah. this. I I am living with a reality and... I know what it is, right? I'm in the prison. I know what I'm living through every day. But people outside, they're imagining how bad it is. They're using their imagination to, to, to maybe picture what I'm living through, and they're expecting the worst. So it really does torment you, especially when you're a mother. And you're saying that in the case of my mother, she, has a, she, she saved me from an illness when I was a child. So... This was like she had a she has a very uh, uh, you know a very special bond with me that she feels that she she should protect me as she once did and and for her it was very tough to not be able to do anything for me and to feel that it was her fault. Everyone will try and blame themselves. Will try and find blame in their own selves. Right. So so you're let go. So what's happened between then and now? Uh, I, I mean, I'm aware new charges were brought, right? Yeah. So basically, they could no longer detain me. Th- there was no reason to bar me from traveling, or there was no way that they could constrain me to Panama. So what they did was they cre- they opened up a new investigation, a new case on the same facts, now alleging money laundering and corruption. And the the sole purpose for that was so that the prosecutor could request what are called precautionary measures. So uh, because of that case, I can't travel and I'm forced to stay in Panama and to not move residences. And because of that case, my life in Panama, uh, it's not just life in Panama, but it's impossible to live with because a money laundering case, an investigation where you have money laundering, will basically will cap your knees. You can't open a bank account you can't sign a lease. You, like, you're, you're basically non-existent financially. Thank God. Thank God that things have been resolved. I mean, two weeks ago, they haven't been exactly resolved, but two weeks ago, finally, a judge ruled to shut down the case because 
of lack of evidence against me. So, so when are you expecting final judgment? When do you expect to finally know that July thirtieth? So, July thirtieth. So, wow. So yeah. So maybe by the time by the time you're publishing days. this, yeah. Yeah. By the time you're publishing this, maybe this the story is has already been you know said. I don't know. And, Who knows? And what are you going to do? You're going to fly straight to New York or to Miami? Where are you going to go to from here? I, I the first thing I have to do is I have to go to Jamaica because okay. I my my family is Jamaican and have very strong roots to Jamaica. So after all of what I've been through, I feel like I want to go back to my to my roots and, and remember where I come from, so that I can move forward. Um, and kind of like not forget this this forget this ever happened, but stick to the path that I've always been on, in spite of what I've been through. That's my goal. I want to go back to New York, uh, probably spend time between New York and, and Silicon Valley. So we now have investors from Silicon Valley. So we, we it now warrants more time in San Francisco. So, you know, I do hope to spend more time over there. And what is the status of the product itself? Where are you at? So it has evolved. You know, I have to say, um, you hear these stories about serendipity in Silicon Valley, about, you know, the coffee shop meeting that turned into an investment that turned into a multi-million dollar exit. Who knows? But this, the story of Cryptex is really beyond another level because that story that was published by Forbes, the, the, title, the title was you know, Entrepreneur Launches, Meet the Entrepreneur that Launches and a WhatsApp Competitor from Prison. And it caught the attention of many people, including uh, Marina Acton, who is a very you know, prominent investor in Silicon Valley. And she got in touch. She ran into the story. It was sent to her by a friend. And, and she got in touch with my lawyer and my lawyer introduced us and November last year, she came to Panama and we had a meeting. I can't leave. So she had to come here. And even though I'm toxic, no other VC would touch us, would even come near us. Um, Marina came to Panama and she, we had a discussion about where we wanted to take this company. And I said, you know, because of what I've been through many of the things that I went through could have been avoided had I been using a more secure email service. So what I want to do is I want to build a more secure email service, something that really protects uh, people's privacy. And she shared the vision and she decided to invest in our company. So in November, she invested, um, she invested in our company. And since then we have been, we've been building um, the new Cryptext. So we rebranded the, the, the Gmail extension to Cryptex for Gmail. And that's a separate product. And we basically built Cryptex as a standalone email service that uses the signal encryption to provide the utmost secure and private email service ever. So are you, is it like a competitor to ProtonMail? It is, it is definitely a competitor to ProtonMail, being that ProtonMail is pretty much the only service provider out there for people who seek privacy. And, and, you know, if you're in the crypto world, you definitely have a, a Proton Mail account. But, you know, one of the things that we went through in, 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 the, prison, in, the, in, in the prison saga was that um, the government, the prosecutors were always a step ahead of us. And the reason was because they were collecting our data from Google and from our, uh, from our lawyer's service provider, email service provider. And I said, you know, this is amazing. 
I am sending them encrypted emails with the Gmail cryptex, and they, they're still a step ahead. There's no privacy. So that's when I decided, you know what? We got to do something different. And the most different thing that you can do out there, the most transparent thing that you can do out there to, to promote privacy is not collect any data at all. So we set in mind, you know, how do we build an email service that is transparent, trustworthy, without having to beg people for trustworthiness, without having them to know about technology or encryption or any of this? And we said, well, let's just not store any data. Let's just have users store all emails locally on their devices. And then we started looking into the Signal protocol. And it turns out that the Signal protocol works exactly like this. Um, and even better than what we had envisioned initially for our own email service. It had never, it's never been used in email, but implemented correctly, it's the perfect way to, 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 you know, to regain your privacy in, in email-based conversations. And when do you think this will launch? So we're launching in, in, in beta on August 8th. And it's, 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 I have to say, I use it every day now, and it's great. Uh, okay. I don't feel... I don't feel it's secure. I don't feel it's, it's, it's any different than a normal email uh, app. And that's exactly what we wanted. We wanted an email app that felt normal, that felt easy to use, similar to WhatsApp. Like when, when WhatsApp went encrypted, you barely realized that it was encrypted. There was, there was no friction to the end user at all. And that's what we want to do. We want to focus on a great app, a great email service that you want to return to every day. And you're essentially getting a chance to start your life again. Yeah. I mean, listen, if it hadn't been for that situation, for that prison event, if it hadn't been for the whole persecution that we've lived through for the last four years, we wouldn't be building this for the world. I mean, I don't know what kind of uh, ripple effects uh, will cryptics have on the world, but it wouldn't have happened without any of the shitty things I've been through, and I wouldn't change. And that's why I wouldn't change a single thing. Right, because that was about to be my next question: Was it, is it all worth it? Has it all been worth it? Totally. Think about it. I I am a nerd. Okay, I'm a nerd. I've been bad at sports my entire life. I look like a nerd. I I love computers. I am. I, I dress nerdy and uh, all of a sudden I'm, I'm not like a badass because I went to prison. That's great. That's awesome. It's been great. I paid the price. Now I can like have fun about, have fun with it. You know, like now, for example, like I'll be like, I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll be at my house and my sister will have, uh, we'll have friends over and I'll be, Hey girls, you know, you never came to visit me in prison, but guess what? I'm still taking conjugal visits. So Hello. And, you know, I'll laugh about it, make it a joke, make it a joke and matter. And in that sense, I think that no one should ever regret whatever they've been through because it doesn't guarantee them that they won't go through similar or shitty situations in the future. I think a better way to lead life as an entrepreneur is always making the most out of the worst situations, trying to capitalize on the negatives and and trying to make, you know, trying to try to grow seeds from even the, the poorest of soils. Um, I think it's possible if I could do it with Cryptex and all the shitty press attention that we had, 
I mean, anyone else can do it. You know, think about it. Like, it's hard to build a startup. It's full of negatives. Every, everything is against you. But in the case of cryptics, we didn't just have everything that a normal startup has against you. We had an entire fucking government. And that was tough. But we still, you know, we still got through. So I think that it's an interesting story for startups who, who, who find it hard to cling or to grasp to hope or optimism when competitors are copying your ideas, when VCs are shutting, your, uh, sh- shutting doors at you, and when no one else believes in you. There's still family. There's still people that trust you, that believe in you. So capitalize on, on, on the bad situation to convert it into a positive situation. The, this, the cryptic story, if I would have told you the story a year ago, it would have been a sad story. Today, it's a good story. It's a positive story. It's a success story. But, you know, back then, we could have never projected it to have been this way. And it was, I think it's due to the attitude that, that my team and I took, you know, that we implemented when we, when we affronted the situation. Well, I mean, I find the whole story fascinating. I've read a lot in the build-up to this and talking it through with you, it, it is fascinating. And look, I just want to say thank you so much for giving me your time. I wish you all the best. I hope we'll meet up at some point in person and uh, have a beer soon. And look, finally, just to close out, can you tell how people can stay in touch with you if you want to hear from anyone? Yeah. What you want to hear about? Sure. Listen, I, I, I love to hear from people. I love to be able to be of help to those who are going through similar situations. Anyone that, that tweets me, I will, I will reply to them. If you'll notice that my Twitter is mainly in Spanish, that's because very much I'm still in Panama, but I am available through Twitter. Um, you can tweet me. LinkedIn is boring, but yeah, sure, you can try that. So Twitter and, uh, and LinkedIn. And I'll share that out in the I mean, show notes. Um, Maya, I wish you all the best. Um, I, I mean, I've run two startups, both very unsuccessfully, but I don't think I've been through any challenges anywhere near what you've been through. And I, I can imagine almost anyone I know who's going through a tough time with their startup to say, well, listen to this story and then tell me how hard you've got it. Right. Well, listen, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to tell this story. I really hope that it adds value to your listeners. I'm, you know, I love, I love what you're doing and I, I'm pretty sure that, um, that there are more stories like these to be told and uh, I hope to hear of them in your podcast. Okay. Thanks, Maya. You take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Maya. Such a crazy story. Really, really wild story pretty amazing how he managed to continue to run his company and also launch an app from within the prison pretty incredible i've been waiting to release this interview for quite a while now it was recorded way back before i even launched defiance Uh, it was an interview that was offered to me i did it i knew it wouldn't suit my other podcast what bitcoin did so i've just been waiting for the right moment and the time is pretty interesting because i was in panama yesterday and actually got to meet mayor for the first time and find out how things are going and life is pretty good for him his startup cryptex is growing so i'm going to follow up with him on that at some point in the future but yeah every Everything's great for Maya now, and yeah, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Also, I need to say a big thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com. 
Also, if you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. Please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow the show on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news. 